This podcast is brought to you by Wikes Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org.
I do is I dig this stuff out. God drops stuff in my lap. But I owe a lot. I, I just want you guys to understand I owe so much to certain people because this stuff is not original with me. And I want to take a minute to say that I really want to say thank you to Ray Vanderlaan. Anybody ever heard of Ray Vanderlaan? Yep. To Sam Nadler, to Zola Levitt, to Robin Sampson, Linda Pierce, Jill Briscoe. Anybody ever heard of her? Alistair Begg. You guys been plugged into Alistair Begg yet? Woo! You've got to meet him. And Steve Brown. Anybody know Steve Brown besides me? Oh, I owe so much to these people. And I want to say thank you. Uh, for them for helping me I tell you what I am I, I, I'm not a woman with a seminary degree I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread isn't that what it's all about and I'm so glad to be here I'm just so tickled to be able to do that um, the seven feasts of Israel is what we're going to start today and I want you to repeat after me Passover, Passover. Unleavened, bread. unleavened bread first fruit, first fruit. Pentecost now, what, what, what feasts are these? Winter, spring, summer, or fall? You guys remember? Spring feasts. Who said it? Woo! She's listening. Now, when, the, when we're through with these posters, I'm going to bring in three more. Okay? And let me, I'm going to bring in trumpets, trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles. And we're going to learn about the fall festivals. Okay? Seven. Now, what I want you to understand is these feasts are laid out in God's Word in Leviticus chapter 23. And God said, I want my people to celebrate these feasts and festivals every year. It's so important. Why? So we can remember. God said, I want you to remember. Because in the Hebrew way of thinking, to remember wasn't just to recall an event. It was to allow that memory to shape us, that we should have an intense focus on that memory to allow that memory to shape us, change us, and direct us in our life. That's so awesome. Now, I want, <laughs> before we get going on Passover, I want to tell you that later on in the history of God's people, two more feasts came along, and we're going to cover those two. The first one comes in February, and it's called Purim. Say it. Purim. The next one comes in December, and it's called Hanukkah. And they're going to blow your mind. I mean, you're gonna, I'm going to be answering questions you never even asked. That is just the best, isn't it? So we have seven feasts laid out for us in Leviticus 23. Two more came along later. Now, for the people that are good in math, what's seven plus two? Nine. Now, we had an, we had an introduction lesson last week that will take up ten weeks, all right? My last week, my second to the last week with you, we're going to do a whole lesson on Palm Sunday. Blow your mind. It's going to get you ready for Easter. My last week with you here, it's my plan to prepare for all of us here a Seder meal. A Seder meal, a Jewish Passover meal. Seder means order. And we're going to all read from the Haggadah. Say that. The Haggadah, the Jewish prayer book. And we're going to begin to understand the meaning, this rich meaning of God's Passover as we taste it, as we smell it, as we feel it, because that's how God works. See, I'm a person that needs examples. Can you tell? I need something to look at. Now, when I'm gone from here, you won't be able to remember my rambling. 
But you'll be able to remember the feasts in order because I have before you wonderful posters full of glitter. And I love glitter. <laughs> but these are so cool. God, God laid these out for his people so they would remember. Just like your birthday. You celebrate that every year because your family says we're celebrating you because you're such a blessing to us. The same with your anniversary. You celebrate that because you love one another. And God says, I want my people to remember because they're going to richly, richly enrich us. And if we would celebrate them as a church, woo, what the church would learn and grow and oh, all the meaning. Okay, now, um, I want to review. We always have to review. That's why we needed to start a little bit on time today. Last week we spoke of Abraham as he finally got it through his thick skull in his wilderness wanderings that God was Elohim. That was a new word for many of you, a descriptive name of God. Okay, now, what did we learn on your little yellow pages? What did you learn that that word, that descriptive name for God, what does it mean? Number one, the ageless God. God. Number two, The the God of the ages. Number three, the eternal God. Number four. Everlasting to everlasting. Yes. Yes. Number five. The God of the big picture. Say the God of the big picture. The God of the big picture. That's what Abraham was finally learning. Can anyone tell me as this man was facing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and we talked of many of them, but what two things specifically happened in his life? When he finally said that God, your Elohim, number one, who can remember? Get those juices flowing. Oh, you guys watched it three times. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Two things happened when finally this old man said, oh, I'm getting a glimpse of who you are, Lord. Ishmael. He had to send Ishmael away. Remember that the son he loved so much. For 17 years, they were linked together. He loved his boy with all of his heart. And God said, you've got to send him away. Because sometimes, folks, there has to be a scattering before God advances his covenant blessings. Do you understand that? You look at your relationships. You look at the people that drag you down. And sometimes there must be a scattering. I'm not talking about your spouse. So just don't get carried away on that one. He had to send Ishmael away. The first, that was the first one. What was the second one? No. Nope. Close. That's okay, though. What was the second one? No. Nope. Huh? Something to do with water. Something to do with water. The locals seized his well. That went right over your head last week, right? I am machine gunning you with so much stuff. You guys didn't hear that. Yeah, the local. Look at the. It's on there. The local seized his well. And a dry and a barren country. And he was frustrated. Who had the purple uh, pages last, the purple pieces that we talked about? Frustrated. What was yours, Maggie? Dusty. Who else had one in here? Huh? Desolate. Desolate. Who else had one? I did. I don't remember. Inhospitable. Lonely. That wilderness was dry. It It was a terrible place to be. And in the wilderness... This man sending Ishmael away, and that name means God hears, having his well seized, finally getting that ironed out. This old patriarch, this wilderness wandering man said, God, you are everlasting to everlasting. You're God of the big picture. And then he went out and did something. Amy, what did he do? Give her a hand. Yes. 
He planted a tamarisk tree. He went out and planted a slow-growing tamarisk tree that gives that speckledy shade, that shade that is only just enough to get us through our wilderness wanderings. Why did this old man plant a slow-growing tree after he discovered God's aloe lamb for future generations? He said, I believe, I believe, I believe. I don't see it all. I don't understand it all. But I believe in a God who does. And he went out and he planted a tree for the future generations. Oh, that we can have that kind of faith. Can you shout an amen? Amen. Woo, I have to settle down. Okay, now I'm going to introduce my face after I wet my whistle. Hold on with this little sweet story. There was a young girl in high school. She was never interested at all in doing anything in the kitchen. All she wanted to do was find her a man. Sound familiar, girls? Her mom said, Honey, you're not going to be able to cook for that man if you don't get in the kitchen with me. I, Mom, i got to find me a man. And she did. Her senior year in high school, she found a man. Her mom said, Let me teach you to cook. Nope, I've got other things to do. After graduation, they had a lovely wedding went on a great honeymoon, and her young daughter came back in a panic. I don't know how to cook George a thing. And she said, and I want to really cook something nice for him. I want to cook that, that nice pork roast you make and, and impress him. So he went out and bought a nice pork roast. And mom said, get in here in the kitchen, and I'm going to show you how to make that yummy recipe. Great granny taught us how to make down through the ages. And so they got the pork roast, and the mom said, all you got to do, baby girl, to start out is get your knife, and before we start, you got to cut off about that much of the pork. Cut it off. And when you get it cut off, take it and put it to the side of the pork roast. And she said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Why do you want to cut into this beautiful pork roast? She said, do you like the recipe? Oh, mama, I love it. Then why are you asking? You're so sassy. Just cut the thing off and do like I told you. And she said, I won't do it. I won't do it. I'm going to go call Grandma and ask her why in the world that's on the recipe card. So she says, Grandma, Grandma, why do we have to cut off the end of the pork roast? She said, you just do it because that's how we do it and it's always good. Don't sass your mama. Go do it. She said, you guys don't know me because I'm not doing it until I find out why. She says, then go call Great Granny if she's up. You know, she's not feeling good. I'll do it. So she calls Great Granny. And she says, why in the Sam Hill do we have to cut part of the pork roast off? Why? I want to know why. Would you hold this for me just a minute? And the granny said, well, sure, honey. I'll tell you. Plop it in here. It's too small. My pan was too small. (laughs) That is so perfect. Because, see, folks, that's us. That's our story. We come together and we do things year after year after year after year and we don't know why. And it's okay to ask why. And people will call you sassy and people will call you too big for your britches and people will call you a lot of things, but you've got every right to ask. God can take it. And then there's a lot of reasons that we do a lot of things that have awesome, awesome meaning behind it, but we've forgotten the meaning. We go through the routine, and we've lost the passion and the power of why we do the things we do. And so I wanted to use that little story as a memory for you to say, it's okay to ask. And when you find the answer, you may just laugh 
and you may fall on your knees in awesome praise to a living God. Elo Lamb, the God of the big picture. And you may love him more and more because the knowing is to love him. And so that's where we're going to start today. Okay, remember, I'm just here for 12 more weeks. They're going to kick me in the tailbone and I'm going to leave, so we're going to have fun. If you don't like what I'm teaching, that's okay. Think about it. Take what you like. Throw out what you don't. We're going to have fun in here for 12 weeks. We're going to have fun. Now, in order for you to understand the richness of this next feast, I have to go over another descriptive name of God for you, and that's Elohim. Say it. Elohim. Say it again. Elohim. Okay, Elohim is one of the names I love of God, one of the descriptive names. Because this word is in your creation story. When you open your Bible to your creation story, it says in the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. That's in your English Bible. But the Hebrew word is Elohim. Elohim created. Elohim created. Elohim created. This is the descriptive name of God that says this. God is the God, mighty and powerful in creation. And he's the God that swore a covenant with himself that he would never stop his work, never stop his labor until all things were restored and made whole. Again, let me tell you that again. God is the God awesome and mighty in creation. The God who swore a covenant. Say it. Say it again. With himself, for there was no one greater by which to swear that he would never stop his work. Never stop his labor until all things were created and made whole. And I'm telling you something, we know how swearing goes. Don't we? We know. You want to swear on something bigger than ourselves? I swear on my grandma's grave. You've ever done said that? Or I swear on a stack of holy Bibles. Because we always swear on something bigger than ourselves. But God was a God who swore a covenant with himself. Why? For there was no one greater by which to swear. The covenant-keeping God, the covenant-making God, that he would never stop his work, never stop his labor, until all things were created and made whole. He entered into a covenant. And a covenant is so much different than a contract because a contract is an exchange of purple, purple pages. What is a covenant an exchange of? Number one. Property, number two, three, yeah, four, four, five, six, stuff. Yes, a contract is an exchange of stuff. But let me tell you something. This is what a covenant is. A covenant is an exchange of people. And a covenant says, oh, I'm going to be yours. And you're going to be mine. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? It's a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. It's a picture of a husband and a wife. You know, I do wet, when I do weddings, it's so amazing because when I do my premarital counseling, I always counsel with this, these people before they get married, and I've discovered they've almost always already bought a house. Half the time they're already living together, but that's beside the point. <laughs> what they've done is they've met with the banker. They've, they've agreed on an interest rate. They've had the property, property searched for liens. They've come up with a down payment. They've signed papers, and they've been given a payment book. Boo, hiss, right? But all the times I've been doing weddings, let me tell you something. I've never had, I've never had the couple send out invitations, order flowers, order rings, line up a preacher to have all these people watch them sign a contract. They don't do that. 
But when the covenant is going to be entered into, when these two young people come together to say, oh, baby, baby, I'm going to be yours and you're going to be mine, then what's pink? Who's got the pink card? Say it with passion. Number one. Yes, number two. Yes, number three. Yes, regal clothes are purchased. Number four. Yes, five. Yes, six. Seven, Kim, say it. The celebration is playing. That's right. Because these two people are coming together before family and friends and God. And they're ending into a covenant together. I'm going to be yours, baby. And you're going to be mine. And I, and I tell them, you look at each other dead square in the face and say, and I will never, never leave you. Heartache, sorrow, poverty, messed up marriage. I'm yours, baby, and yours, mine, and we will never leave each other. That's a picture of the God we serve. Elohim, the God, awesome and mighty in creation, and the God who swore a covenant, say it, with himself, for there was no one greater by which to swear that he would never stop his work, never stop his labor, until all things are restored and made whole, and we could be his, and he could be ours. That's the God I serve. That's the God I want my kids and grandkids to know about. And that's the God that's crocheted in these seven feasts of Israel. Hmm. Wish I didn't get so dry. Anyway, very important to our study. God is the God of covenant. And you're going to see this written all over these feasts. Now, also, I want you to remember that the number seven is going to be really important to our study. Say it three times. Seven, seven, seven. Seven. Oh, you guys have to understand this. When God created the world by his spoken word, he created who has the green card? Number one. Who has number? Say it again. Number two. Number three. Number four. Number five. Number six. Animals in the crown of God's creation. Oh, yes, that's us on day six. And God could have said, oh, it's so good, and he did. But he could have brushed his mighty hands together and said, I'm done. But he did not. He added a seventh day. Say it. Seven, and he called it the Sabbath. And what I want you to understand about this word Sabbath is very closely related to the word covenant. Oath or seven. God created in the days of creation his covenant, his promised vow to his world that I will never stop working, never stop my labor until the whole mess that's coming is going to be restored and made whole. Seven is God's number of covenant. It means many other things. But all I want you to focus on today, that seven, when you see seven in the Old Testament, when you see all these sevens, remember God's telling his people, I will keep my covenant, and you will be mine, and I will be yours. And it's so, so beautiful. God um, created his world. We know the story. And uh, not a whole lot of time centered in the picture. And uh, things were so broken. And I want us to understand that we know things are broken. If God's sworn to fix it, we're still living in a broken world, aren't we? Who has the little black runoff list? Number one. Marriages. Say it again, Annie. I didn't broken hear you. Marriages. Broken marriages. Shattered homes. Shattered homes. 
You guys repeat after them. Say it again. Broken dreams. Famine. Poverty. Neglected children. Spousal abuse. Pride and arrogance. You guys remember, when you see this broken world, and that's just a few of them, we live in a very messed up world. And every time you see the number seven, and wherever you're driving in this world, you see that seven, you remember this class, that God is the God of covenant. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe God can fix what's fractured and broken in your life? That's the challenge of this. Okay, I found it very interesting when I was teaching the Ten Commandments. That commandment number, who can guess what number I'm going to pull out of the ten? That commandment number seven, I know I didn't give you guys a st- time to study up on your commandments. Can anybody remember what seven is? Yes, do not commit adultery. That means do not commit adultery against your covenant partner. So cool that that was number seven. I asked him backwards flips all over the church office. It was wonderful. It's so cool. So in all of his wisdom, God ordained, guess how many feasts? Seven. Remember my covenant. You're going to be tempted to forget. You're going to be in the wilderness of your life. And you're going to think, God, my problems are too big. Remember my covenant. Remember the story of Abraham. I believe. I believe. I'm hurting. I'm broken. I don't see your plan. But I believe that you have it under control because you're El Lamb. Give, the, give God a praise. Remember, this is all these are laid out so we can remember, which is in the Hebrew way of thinking, an intense focus to shape us, change us, and direct us. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Do this in, in memory. It's carved where? Communion tables all over the world. Remember, God is saying. Remember and let the memory of that tangy grape juice and that unleavened bread that you're chomping on. Remember. And most of us don't even know what to remember. Most of us are clueless. We chomp, chomp, chomp on that uh, disgusting tasting bread and we followed by that sweet little tangy grape juice. I always wish the grape juice holders were this big. We need to know what we're doing and we need to bring the meaning out of that. So, okay. Didn't start with communion. We've been celebrating communion for 2,000 years. But for 1,400 years before that, God's faithful people were celebrating a Passover meal which is forever and eternally linked to our communion meal. 3,500 years. Say that. 3,500 years God has been telling His people, remember, remember, remember so that memory can shape you, change you, and direct you. So powerful. So buckle up. Buckle up. We're going to look at this first Passover, the beautiful little lamb there. Okay. God created his world, and I just told you it was good, but sin entered the picture. And, uh, and Adam and Eve were in the garden. Satan appeared to them, 
and convince them that God was holding out on them. You guys ever felt like God's holding out on you? You can say yes because I'm sure you have. Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan's convincing them, are you kidding me? Man, God's holding out on you. And so they ate the fruit and, man, they looked up and for the first time in their lives, they found out they were standing there tailbone butt naked in the garden. And they were ashamed and they were embarrassed. And God comes on the scene and they have a little talk and he takes a little lamb and before their very eyes, he slaughters this lamb and skins it out and covers their shame and covers their embarrassment with the lamb's skin to cover their shame. What I want you guys to understand is this blood, that very vision of that shed blood was so shocking to them that blood is a proper sacrifice. From the shedding of the blood to cover Adam and Eve's shame to the shedding of the Passover lamb to deliver God's people from bondage to the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our bondage. Blood is a proper sacrifice. Say that. That is so good, and we are going to keep that in our mind. Blood delivers people from bondage. No matter what testament you read from, the Old Testament, also called the Tanakh, say that, the Tanakh. In the Old Testament, the blood of the Lamb delivered God's Hebrew slaves. In the New Testament, the blood of God's Lamb, Jesus Christ, delivers us from bondage of sin, death, hell, and the grave. Blood is a proper sacrifice. So let's look. How much time do we have left? Okay, we're going to do it. Buckle up. God told Abraham, leave your people, shag the joint, leave your mom, your dad, everything, and he did. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, say it, land and descendants. This man had no land. He had not a child, and he picked up, and he left, and he followed God. Abraham left everything and followed God. Do you ever feel like you're doing that? I mean, some of us really, truly have left everything following God. Abraham's descendants, several centuries later, found themselves in cruel bondage to an evil Pharaoh. If you guys have heard the story in Sunday school, it's a bonus. If you haven't, let me tell you. The man, the people of covenant, found themselves in cruel bondage in Egypt for 430 years. They didn't even have a memory of freedom. They were told to when, they were told when to get up. They were told when to go to bed. They were told where to work, how long to work. They didn't even own their children. For Pharaoh looked up and saw this nation of Hebrews multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And he was so worried that they would join forces with the foreign nation and take Egypt over that he came up with a great plan. And he told his soldiers, go down to the land of Goshen where those weird Hebrews live. And any time a male boy is born, I guess a male would always be a boy, any time a male is born... Anytime, I'm sorry. Anytime, anytime a boy is born, rush into that house. Take that little male child out of the arms of the mother. Grab it by its ankles. Bash its head against the stone wall. And throw the little corpse of that wee one in a wagon, a royal Egyptian wagon, and go from house to house. And every Hebrew boy must die. 
And they would take these little wee ones, little Hebrew infants, to the Nile and toss them to the crocs. And the crocs of the Nile River grew fat on the flesh of God's redeemed. Horror! Horror! These people did not even own their children. But God's covenant people, God never abandoned His covenant people. In the fullness of time, He sent a deliverer. And who can guess who that deliverer was? Moses! Moses! You know the story. I do not have time to go over it. Moses, he said, I, re- I re- remember, God said, I'm remembering my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look, God didn't forget it. He's ready to act. He's ready to act in the direction to redeem his people. He said, Moses, go down and talk to Pharaoh. But first, you go down and you talk to my discouraged people. You go down and you tell them something very important they must remember and prepare for. Who has the gold speckledy papers? Number one, Zach. I'll bring you out. Bring you out. Number two. I will set you free. Oh, I'll set you free. Number three. I will, I will redeem you. Number four. I will make you my own special people. I'll bring you out. I'll set you free. I'll redeem you. And I'll make you my own. And they did not believe. Why didn't they believe? Because of their discouragement. Because they were broken and tired and hot and lonely. And then God said, just leave them. Let them think on that for a while and you go and you have a meeting with Pharaoh. And Moses, his hands were sweaty and the butterflies were raging as he went nose to nose with the most powerful man in Egypt and maybe the most powerful man in the world. And he goes before Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, I'm here with a message from the, from the God of those slave people. And God's told me to tell you, Pharaoh, Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, not on your life. And Moses said, that's fine. Then let it begin. And God unleashed his fury. God unleashed his cup of damnation on that nation. And what did he do? What were those plagues? Number one, they're a blue copy, a blue page. Number one. Say it again, Lori. Say it. Repeat them. Two. That's so cool. I mean, you know, you're rattling off the ten plagues. Well, those are nine. No, you haven't got to the tenth one yet. Rattling off those, t- those plagues. We've, re- we've heard the story. But this is what I want you guys to understand. The Hebrew people maintained their unique identity of a sort. And they never rejected Elohim, the God of creation. But for 430 years... They said, oh, all of those Egyptian gods are stronger than our God. They're stronger. Why did they feel like the Egyptian gods were stronger than Elohim? Who can tell me? Take a wild guess. If you're wrong, I'll tell you. Huh? They could see them, but there's another reason. They hadn't heard from him. That's another reason. But where were they physically? They were in bondage. Their God wasn't coming through for them for 430 years. That's a long time to wait on God, right? And so God says, I'm going to unleash my fury and every plague. 
The plague of the, the water to blood attacked. Attacked the, the Egyptian god, the guardian of the Nile. One for God. The frogs attacked the, the, the goddess of birth. And that goddess had a frog head. Every plague was God coming up against the gods of the Egyptians. And who was winning? God. And so God was showing His strength and power to three groups of people. God was showing His strength and power to His wounded Hebrew slaves. He was showing His strength and power to the mighty Egyptians. And He was showing His strength and power to the neighboring nations because they were all watching. It's so wonderful. It's a wonderful story. He said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he said, not on your life. And so Moses left. And he went down to his little discouraged slave people. And he said, listen here, all you little slaves, living in little slave hovels with little slave children, sleeping on little slave mattresses, all of your little slave houses, all of you get ready because after this final plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. All after that plague, Pharaoh's going to let us go. He said, get, go to your little, little slave flocks. And all of you are to select a lamb. A perfect lamb. One-year-old male lamb. Spotless. Without blemish. No runny eyes. No snotty nose. No crippled leg. No diarrhea. Perfect spotless and bring this lamb into your home on the 10th day of Nisan and let it live with you and let it play with your kids and examine it to make sure it's perfect. And those kids fell in love with that lamb. You know they did. And on the 14th day of Nisan, the papa's to take the knife and slaughter the lamb and spill the blood in a bowl. What must the kids have thought? Oh, daddy, daddy. And the lamb, the lamb's blood was in the bowl. And the daddy's to take the lamb's blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost and the lentils of your home. Roast the lamb. Don't boil it. Roast it. Eat it all. If there's any left over, burn it up. Burn it up. Don't save it. Don't leave any of it left. Eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs to remember your slavery. And get ready because the Passover lamb is coming. Get ready. Eat with your jacket on your belt tied, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. For this is the Lord's Passover. The avenging angel is going to pass over. And anyone without the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the oldest male son will be slain. And I'm telling you, they believed him. They had nine months of horror as they had watched what God had done to the most powerful nation of the world. Egypt barely had a pulse left. And so all these, little, all these little slave people were getting ready. The avenging angel is coming. The firstborn son in every home, whether Pharaoh in his palace or a, the prisoner in the dungeon or the animals in the barn, every, every firstborn male will be slain if there's no blood on the lamb, if there's no blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So Hebrew, um, Moses leaves. The Hebrews did as God commanded. The first full moon of spring, the perfect lamb was slain, and the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost, and the little slave families were standing in the darkness of their home. No fluorescent lights, no outside lights, a flickering candle, and the little slave people watched. They were watching. They were watching. Would God keep His promises? Would He bring us out? Will He set us free? 
And they were watching in the stillness of the full moon. That breeze was blowing in. And all of the Hebrew slaves were petrified. Would the death angel deliver us? Will we be delivered by the blood of the Lamb? And all of a sudden, in the darkness and the stillness of the night, across the horizon at the gated communities of the rich Egyptians, you heard a scream and another scream and another scream as the, as the rich Egyptians were finding in the beds of their opulent homes the slain children, their firstborn children. And it was horrible. They could hear the screaming. And Pharaoh, the awesome, proud, arrogant ruler of Egypt, comes with his dead son. And he says, Moses, out of here, out, get out. And Moses runs to his people and says, get it together, kids. We're sagging this joint. And all of God's people, all of those Hebrew slaves collected their children, their flocks, their herds, their meager belongings, loaded them on rickety carts, put them on beasts of burden. And that night, 430 years to the day of their bondage, God set them free. And they, woohoo! And they flooded out. They flooded out of the land of Goshen into the streets and the highways. And they passed the opulent homes of the Egyptians. And they were so afraid of God. They said to the Hebrews, take our gold, take our silver, take our rings, take our earrings, take our necklaces and our jewelry and our fine fabrics and our linen and take our stuff. Just go. And God's people left with the wealth of Egypt. Out they went, celebrating to the Red Sea. And then they could go no further. And they heard, they heard the war machine of the Egyptians. Boom, boom, boom. And they were hemmed in the Red Sea before them. The army of Pharaoh behind them. And they said, oh, Moses, what are we going to do? And Moses said, be still and let God fight for you. And God said, no. And the Red Sea split in two. A wall of water to the left. A wall of water to the right. And God's people walked to the right side of redemption on a dry seabed. And when the last foot hit the right side of redemption and that army was in the middle of the seabed, God said, no. And that water splashed down and drowned God. Drowned the armies of Pharaoh. I can't really talk. And they watched, and God's people watched as the bloated bodies of that massive, strong army washed upon shore. And they watched as God had remembered His promises. Give Him a hand. Give Him a hand. That's only half of the story. <laughs> I thought you said you were quiet. I, uh, uh, you know what? I, that really is a place to pause. Uh, that's really just the introduction to the second part of the lesson. But I'm not going to rush through it. I'm not going to rush. We'll review. Yeah. 
what I want you guys to see today, and I wish I had time to get in, but we will next week, I promise. What I want you to see is God wants you to teach your children this. Go home and you ask your kids, tell me about the Passover. Because we're not teaching them enough at home. We're saying, oh, I sent them to Sunday school. We got to do better at home. These feasts were celebrated in the home. Most all of them were celebrated in the home. And you need to tell your children, I learned something about God, a descriptive name, L.O. Lamb, and he's the God of the big picture. And baby, no matter what we're going through, no matter the hardships, no matter if mom and dad can't get along this week, God's going to see us through. And then you need to tell him about Elohim, the creator, awesome and mighty in creation, that swore a covenant with himself where there was no one greater by which to swear that he would never stop his work, never stop his labor until all things are created and made whole. Oh, kids, can we believe in that kind of God? Because they're going to go out to school and they're going to hear a message that says God's dead. It's stupid to believe in God. It's stupid to hold on to the awesome fences of the Ten Commandments and they're going to hear these voices. But right now when they're young, you have their heart. Teach your children. Tell your children about the Passover. Go from this place and shine for your King Jesus. Go from this place and shine for your King Jesus. Let it begin at home. Okay, see you next week. We'll finish the balance of this. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.